Welcome back to Midwretched, friends. Welcome back to Midwretched. You'll have to bear with us for a moment because Mick is sending me pictures of her husband holding a baby skunk, and I'm really excited. He's pretty cute. They're both really cute. Her husband is really cute, and I'm sure the skunk is really cute. While she's doing that, I'm Tommy. That's Mick over there. I'm over here scrolling through my phone. I have a lot of pictures of my plants, mm. <laughs> but I can't seem to find pictures of my partner. <laughs> picture of Ted Kaczynski. Mm. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. I feel like there's a meme in here somewhere of, of like, you know, you're a millennial when you've got more pictures of your plant than you do your spouse. I have so many pictures of my plants, and I have some yeah. pictures of, like, the little baby bunnies that are living in our lilac tree. Aww. Um, You're such a idyllic little suburbanite. I, I've, You know what? I've just fucking given into it. I don't mm. even care anymore. So here's the thing. I cannot intro this story because I have no idea what's going on. I promised that I would not do any Googling or sneak peeking, so I don't know what's about to come to me other than that it's supposed to be somewhat hopeful. Which is I'm good. I'm going to have to send this to you later. Okay. Because life is anyway. hard. Yeah. Because life is hard and mm-hmm. I have more pictures of dogs that are up for adoption than I do of my own husband. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Speaking of adoption, I told you that this was going to be a story of a foundling. Yes. Oh, that's right. You did. Yeah. Yeah. So there are a million ways to start telling this story. And when I was like, how do I do this? I decided to steal a page from your book. And I'm starting with a letter. letter. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Stealing my steez. All right. I'm totally, totally stealing your steam because I was like, who do I know that is an amazing writer with multiple degrees in how to write things and tell a story? (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. I'll give you that. So we're going to start with this it's letter slash email. Written by a man named Paul Franzak to his parents in 2012. It says, Dear Mom and Dad, First, I am your son and always will be. You and Dad have been wonderful parents and have shaped me into the person I am today. I love you both and that will be forever. The DNA test results came back and it turns out I am not your biological son. Mm. I am not the kidnapped baby you had stolen from your arms. This means that the real Paul Joseph Franzak may still be out there, alive, not knowing who he is. I want to find out if the real Paul Franzak is alive and what happened to him. And I want to find out who I am and what happened to me. I hope you and Dad will be with me on this and be part of this process. Thank you for all that you have done for me in the past and for our future together. Your loving son, Paul. Wow. Okay, this is going to have me so messed up. (laughs) There's a lot in just those few sentences, right? Yeah, this is going to have me so messed up. Like I said, this is going to be a long story. Mm. That letter was written in 2012. We're going to have to go back 48 more years to start to tell this story. Mm. And even now in 2023, the story is not fully told. Hmm. It's not completely over. So... We're going to start off today in the delivery room at the now-demolished Michael Reese Hospital in Chicago. Mm. I'm going to make my screen bigger because I'm old. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 
Um, so the delivery rooms and the mother baby rooms of today are a little bit different than what they were in the 1950s and 1960s. Yeah, big time, big time. And you've spent some time in some uh, delivery rooms. I have indeed. I have indeed. <laughs> and you know, they are still a little chaotic. You still got a million people checking in on you and looking at the baby and, you know, grabbing things and checking out your parts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. But... Back in the day, women would actually deliver in one room of the hospital, and then the baby would be taken into a communal nursery after a brief period of bonding, where they would be monitored by nurses, doctors, the rest, and then mothers would kind of be then moved back into another room. So you were only in the delivery room for a short period of time. That's still true. Yeah. Yeah. They also used to uh, knock women out so you were asleep when you gave birth. Mm. What a dream. <laughs> I mean, I know it was like bad practice and not medically sound and stuff, but um, I, I mean, mean, there are some things I experienced that if I could have slept through, I would have been very grateful. <laughs> Four out of my grandma's five kids were born while she was knocked out. And she That's said she wild. It. That's wild. <laughs> but anyway, so it was common for babies to be taken from their mothers, grabbed by nurses for evaluations and checkups. It was a time when we trusted doctors and authorities in a way that we no longer quite do. Mm. And of course, America still doesn't believe in paternity leave. It didn't back then either. So fathers might be there for the delivery, but we're right back at work the next day. And they didn't really spend much time in the hospitals at all. So in our delivery room at Michael Reese Hospital, we have Dora and Chester Franzak. It is April 26th, 1964. Just a little kind of background on Dora and Chester. So Chester is an old school Chicagoan, the likes of which are a rarity anymore. Mm. The son of Polish immigrants, he was born and raised in Chicago, a factory worker and machinist his entire adult life. The kind of working class guy that took pride in the engine parts that he built and the simple kind of Norman Rockwell-esque life that he always wanted to provide for his family. No. Very idyllic little Chicagoan, little Polak from Chicago. Yeah, I love this. Dora grew up in Michigan. She was the child of Croatian immigrants. And Dora grew up extremely poor um, and kind of always wanted to leave that life. So the moment that she was old enough, she and her sister moved to Chicago in search of a better life. There in Chicago, she worked as a bank teller where she would meet Chester while she was working at the bank. And he would nearly daily try to charm and woo her until she finally agreed to a date It's just such a cute little 60s story, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. So Dora and Chester would eventually marry and begin to plan for a family. So on that day in April 1964, Dora was very excited, but also very cautious. Because just the year before, in that same hospital, on that same floor, she had experienced the stillbirth of her first child. So when the doctors told her that she had given birth to a healthy son eight pounds, 20 inches with a tuft of brown hair and full of life, Dora was absolutely overjoyed. Doctors cleaned up the boy, who who would be named Paul Joseph Franzak. The family was given plenty of time together to hold and snuggle their new son before he was eventually taken off to the nursery. Dora and Chester continued their celebrations that night, but when morning came, Chester had to return to work at the factory where he would celebrate with his friends and cigars. Such a beautiful, like, 1960s little setting, right? Mm -hmm. Dora's day at the hospital was pretty typical. 
Paul would be brought into the room for feeding and bonding time, but would otherwise be observed in the nursery with the other babies. Dora would spend her time with her roommate, Joyce Doan, who was waiting to give birth. The morning after Paul was born, April 27th, a woman in a nurse's uniform came into the room of Joyce and Dora, did a quick check on baby Paul, lifting the blanket to take a quick look at his face, and then left. The woman struck both Joyce and Dora as a little bit odd. Joyce would later say that the nurse didn't seem particularly warm or nurturing, kind of traits that you would expect of a you know, maternity ward nurse. Mm. In fact, Joyce said, quote, I think she must have hated the world. Oh. That was just the vibe that this woman gave off. I had one of those. You had one of those in your ward? Mm-hmm. I feel like there's always one, right? Yeah, it was rough. She was my nurse, like, the, I think the night after I had my first baby. Mm-hmm. And it was like, that was like a really fragile time because it's my first oh, baby God. and... I hormones was having a are really hard time. The hormones and... are going crazy. It was not an easy birth. Mm-hmm. She was just mean. And she was a violent practitioner of the uterine massage. <laughs> I don't want anyone violently massaging my uterus. No, you don't. <laughs> it's rough. Oh, it's rough. dear. I am sorry. But, like, again, rough nurses, cold nurses, they exist. So Joyce and Dora really didn't think much of it. They probably just kind of snickered at each other, like, as the nurse left. Mm -hmm. And around 1 p.m. that afternoon, Paul was brought back to Dora from the nursery for his feeding. While she was nursing him, so nursing usually lasted quite a while, at least like an hour to give baby enough time to feed, mom enough time to bond, and, you know, regular rounds and things happening. But it was only 30 minutes later that that cold-looking nurse would return telling Dora that the pediatrician needed to examine baby Paul immediately. While Dora was disappointed, she handed over the child to the nurse, expecting to see him again soon. About another 30 minutes later, around 2 p.m., a different nurse came into the room, asking to take baby Paul back to the nursery. So Dora and her roommate kind of both mentioned that, oh, like this other nurse came already to take him. She said that he's with the pediatrician, you know, go talk to whatever nurse. So the nurse said, okay, no problem, and left the room calmly. But I'm guessing as soon as she was out of earshot of that room, she went frantic. Quickly, frantically asking all of the other nurses where the baby has gone, where's baby Franzak, he's not in the nursery, there's no other doctor that has him. Immediately, all of the nurses on the ward knew that somebody had taken this baby. They obviously did their due due diligence. They searched all the hallways, the examination rooms for any possible mix-ups before they would call the police. But it was only another 20 minutes, so at 2.20, the Chicago police were called to the hospital. And it was only another 30 minutes before a citywide alarm was broadcast, and there was a citywide search for a missing baby on. All this time, this less than an hour that had passed. Dora is just kind of sitting contently in her room, just waiting for her baby to be returned to her. Oh, poor Dora. She's just sitting there like, do-do-do, I hope everything's okay. Like, no idea that there was already a mad rush and that her baby had gone missing. Every nurse, doctor, and technician at Michael Reese Hospital was interviewed by police. About a dozen nurses were able, were able to give a consistent description of a woman 
a nurse that stood out they were not familiar with who appeared odd and kind of out of place that day. She would be doing things like helping staff fold towels and blankets with the cleaning staff. She seemed kind of lost along the ward. They're like, this woman, she, it has to be her. Like, she's not one of us. That dozen nurses described a woman in her 30s or 40s, between 5'4 and 5'5, five five, about 140 pounds, wearing a white nurse's uniform, stockings, and shoes, but no nurse's cap. And I'm going to send you the picture that they were able to kind of Oh, give is there a sketch? There is an awful sketch. Oh, goody. You know I love awful sketches. I know you do. Oh, Lord Almighty. Zoom in on that, please. Oh, Paul Joseph Franzak, the baby is so cute. Yeah, baby is super cute. Yeah, there is a not great. I mean, though, it's not the worst sketch in the world. Like, there is some notable detail to her face. Mm -hmm. What stands out to me most is her eyebrows. Very sharp. Which are very sharp and very thin, which I Mm -hmm. think, I don't think that, like, a super plucked brow was the trend at this time. So that seems Mm -hmm. distinctive to me. No, no. Plucked brow. 60s, yeah, not a super plucked brow. Yeah, she's very severe looking. So I can see why, yeah. Her face is a little bit gaunt, but Mm -hmm. not in, like, in a striking way. Yeah, her lips are very, very thin, very taut. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like she looks gaunt, but she's not like, like she has like a normal size and stature, mm-hmm. you know, per the description. But she definitely looks very severe. She looks in this sketch like, I feel like sometimes with sketches, you can tell when somebody is coming to the sketch to give the sketch and they have like a yeah. bad vibe on that person. Yep, and yep. that bad vibe comes out in how they describe their features, right? The same way that like whatever we don't like somebody, we tend to describe them as less attractive than they actually are and when we do like 100%. somebody we describe them as more attractive than they actually are mm-hmm. i feel like you can see that in this sketch that they were like she was scary and as such the she sketch scary is scary and mm-hmm. angry like if this nurse came into my room i would be like oh yeah she looks cold mm-hmm. she looks harsh most definitely yeah now the baby is really cute Bebe. the baby has Baby's a lot cute. of hair yeah, this is uh, Dora and Chester. You can't see much of Dora's face. Dora mm. was broken when they told her. Oh yeah, my of gosh! She was. This is a night. This is a- absolute nightmare fuel. Mm-hmm. I think any mother. I'm gonna stop sharing now. Do do do. Any mother. This is like their absolute worst nightmare, right? It's up like, there. I mean, it's horrifying. Like sometimes at the hospital, it feels kind of a little overkill how much they tag the baby. Mm-hmm. But. I mean, there are good reasons for the way Baby that they Franzak do it. Is a is a big reason why they do it now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they like they geotag them even like they have like um little anklets <laughs> that, RFIDs on them. <laughs> yeah, basically, like they can't like get through a metal detector. So I was going to go into this later, but right around this time was when they started. It started becoming really popular to do footprints of babies. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't required and it wasn't standardized. So there never was a footprint or fingerprints or anything taken of baby Paul. Mm. That picture that you saw is the only thing that they have. And for a baby, he looks pretty distinct, like as far Mm -hmm. as the amount of hair on his head. But it's something. Yeah. But I mean, babies just be looking like potatoes. 
a lot of the time. And the only thing you can really tell is like differences in coloring, you know? Especially at a day old. Mm-hmm. Like if they were, you know, a year old, even like six, eight months old, you'd be oh, able yeah. to see They're some much more kind of features. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But a day old, they all just look like little alien potatoes. Yeah. Cute. Little alien Cute little potatoes. alien potatoes. But they're, yeah, like it's hard to, I mean, you don't want to say it, but like, I feel like if somebody had taken my baby from me at like an hour old and I had just gotten like a glimpse of her, I might not have totally cemented in my brain like exactly what she looked like, you know? Exactly what that baby is, right? Mm-hmm. So they're able to put the sketch together. One nurse said that she saw the woman leave through a rare through a rear stairwell and a lab assistant said that he saw a woman that matched the description carrying a child wrapped in a hospital blanket get into a blue station wagon with another woman and a man Hmm. police were also able to track down a cab driver who picked up a woman in a nurse's uniform near michael reese carrying an infant the cab driver reported that he drove the woman and the infant to 35th and halstead sometime between 130 and 215 so that's about a 10 minute drive Hmm. so just to kind of situate us in terms of like chicago landmarking um michael reese hospital has been torn down but it was kind of near the lake near the lakeshore area near where mccormick place is now um and near kind of the bridgeport neighborhood so it's very close to the lake It's very close to the train. It's very close to the highway. If we're talking like how far can this woman get away with this baby in a 30-minute time gap, in literally any direction, she could be anywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm just doing a little Googling to situate myself. I knew you were going to. (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so from like that approximate location to where the hospital used to be, to 35th and Halstead is Mm -hmm. six minutes of today driving time, Mm -hmm. which obviously would have been, like, slower in the early 60s, but still, I mean, not, like, crazy slower. It might have been faster because there wasn't as much traffic. Yeah, maybe. So it became apparent to the police that this woman had clearly scoped out the hospital and the birthing ward long before she took this baby. She knew which doors were locked, which stairways were under surveillance. She knew essentially that there was no way to take a baby directly from the nursery because that was under constant watch by nurses, by anxious parents, grandparents, families, all of that. And it seemed that she had been shopping around the maternity ward, lifting up blankets, checking babies' faces, inspecting them to see who met whatever her criteria were. Eventually, after completing his shift work and sharing cigars with his co-workers, Chester would finally make his way to the hospital. Oh, God. So please remember, neither Dora nor Chester have any idea what's happening. That's right. Take a big drink. Yeah, that was a three gulper. As soon as Chester would enter the hospital, he would be met by police and told that his first and only son had gone missing from the arms of his wife. I can only imagine the absolute grief and fear that went through his head when he walked into Dora's room, who, again, was still just patiently waiting on her son to be returned to her, Mm. probably wondering, like, oh, it's got to be feeding time by now. Like, what's going on? And of course, this is like 
the early 60s, so nobody is like, maybe we should talk to the mother right away and let her know what's going on. No, we have to tell we have to tell the father first. Yeah. Because I whatever, cuz Dora's going to be in hysterics, which obviously she was. Rightfully so. That utter feeling of loss that she had to like when she was told that the son that she had desperately wanted for so long was just had just disappeared. Yeah. I mean, I can't it's 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 absolutely horrifying. It's horrifying. And, and again, like no I'm certain nobody told her this, but I'm also certain that she probably knew it in her head that she handed her baby over to this kidnapper. Yeah. So police would interview Dora, although I don't know how much information she was able to coherently put together at the moment. Her roommate Joyce was able to give a full description of the nurse, similar to what the other nurses had given. Dora and Chester, I think, were eventually given a private room with major security from both the Chicago Police Department and the FBI. The FBI got involved in this case really, really quickly. Mm. Literally no time was wasted in getting the search going. And it wouldn't even be long until the head of the post office, who was a Polish-American, much like Chester, basically deputized all of his postal workers to be on the lookout to report anything out of the ordinary that they saw on their routes. That's awesome. Which I think is, like, actually a really brilliant strategy because, like, the post workers, especially at that time, were hoofing it every single day. They knew every family, every baby in the neighborhood, every Mm -hmm. pregnant woman. So I thought that was a great strategy. Yeah, that's really smart. I mean, they see everything. Mm -hmm. Now, in the next few days, there would be a number of leads and arrests on the case, there was one attempt at extortion in which a woman claimed that, or a couple claimed that they had a baby and were, and demanded a ransom. So police sent an undercover woman dressed as Dora, and they arrested the person that had made the claim. That person had zero information about the baby. They were just taking advantage of the situation. Mm. Another woman was arrested that had clear mental health issues, that had no information she was able to provide. And then just another random woman in a babushka scarf got arrested. (laughs) (laughs) He's always one of those suckers. (laughs) It's like, hey, you would kidnap a Polish baby, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I will soon be that old lady in the babushka scarf. You will. Hopefully not kidnapping babies. I won't be kidnapping babies. Yeah. 38,000 people would be interviewed in relation to this case. Wow. And 10,000 babies were examined to see if they could be baby Franzak. But unfortunately, nothing ever shook out. There were no leads, no information about this poor child. It wasn't just the family or the police that were concerned, but the doctors too. After, you know, a quick clinical history, the doctors identified a history of lactose intolerance and other allergies within the family. And very quickly, I thought this was kind of cool. The Chicago Tribune issued a front page warning to whoever took the baby to not give the baby's cow's milk, along with specific instructions on how to prepare soy milk and vitamin supplements to provide him um, vitamin C and D to ensure that the baby would stay alive. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, on the front page of the Chicago Tribune. it Dang. was. Yeah. Oh, I want to see that page. That's cool. Here, I brought it. I made a link to it. Oh. Here. Do, 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 do. I did a You're lot. You're like, I brought it to the party. 
I did bring it to the part. Oh, no, I have to sign in. Mm. With your sign in. With your login. <laughs> My login for what? What do you... Do we oh, share uh, Chicago Tribune? Oh, okay. Um, you're going to see some just concerning headlines from the 1960s Chicago Tribune. I'm shocked. Please don't judge me by them. Mm. Oh, my. Um, anyway, up. here it is. Advice milk be removed. Oh, God. <laughs> Sorry, ignore the article right next to it. Oh, boy. Anyway, warn kidnapper of baby's allergy. Wow. This feels so of its time. Like, this case feels so of its time already. I spent a lot of time on newspapers.com just looking at, like, how this case was reported, what Mm -hmm. was going on. It is so of its time. It's so interesting. It's so, I mean, between this and the the mail, mail carriers, it just seems so interesting to me how, like, these moves are so, like, deeply logical. And they make perfect sense to do. And a billion and one protocols would be in place now to make sure that they do not get done. But you can 100% see just the logic, the point A to point B of it all, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, so I got to read a lot of uh, this stuff by Yeah, <laughs> I'd like to not be looking at that anymore. <laughs> okay, I'll stop sharing. I'm sorry. Yeah. It was racist. That's That's... It was racist news coverage from the 60s. I don't know how much we need to dive into it. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Dora and Chester are absolutely broken. They gave a couple of interviews to the Tribune, to the local news. A million different papers would run this story. In every interview, Dora is absolutely just in pieces. Just like she can barely get through a sentence to talk through this. Chester, again man of his time is just seen trying to maintain his stoicism, avoiding eye contact, staring at the floor, giving the shortest possible answers that he can, but not given a tear, not given an emotion. Mm. Um, Polish man from the 1960s. Dora refused to leave the hospital, honestly, for weeks, Mm -hmm. Um, saying that she needed to be there in case the nurse came back with her baby. And she said, well, if they come back, I need to be here. They need to see that I never left. My baby needs to see that I never left. After a while, though, the hospital would, like, be like, she needs, it's not good for her to stay here. Like, it's not good for her mental health. Police and doctors would finally convince her to go home. And so they returned to their home in the Brighton Park neighborhood of Chicago, near the west side, a little bit west of Bridgeport, if just you're curious about Chicago. Police would would continue to surveil the house and tap the phone lines, hoping for tips if anyone called. After nearly a month, Chester would finally return to work. But Dora would sit at home every single day, just sitting, waiting for her son to be returned. For a long time, she didn't leave to go anywhere except to church and back. As the days went on, leads were fewer and fewer. There were no tips coming in, no phone calls, no nothing. FBI and police presence would thin out week by week until they eventually pulled the taps on the phone lines that they had installed. As the headlines thinned out, it was kind of a mixed bag for the Franzaks. 
because they were obviously clearly uncomfortable with the interviews and with the attention. But as attention waned, that meant the hope and optimism waned too. I think, and we've talked about this in in missing child cases before, the more you're in the news, the more luck there is that somebody's Mm going to say something, somebody's going to see something, there will be a break in the case. And once that's gone, you really do have to like admit like, okay, this might not happen for us. What should have been baby Franz X first birth, first birthday passed with no information or leads. His second birthday would approach with the same feeling of dread. Eventually, in March of 1966, the Franzaks would sue the hospital for alleged negligence and carelessness in permitting unauthorized persons into the maternity wards. Good, because this has been my this has been bothering me since mm-hmm. you started. Mm-hmm. Just this idea that like, okay, here's this like unknown person that nobody knows, mm-hmm. and nobody has at least come forward to say that they asked this person who they were. Yeah, like that is extremely weird and suspicious to me. Like. That nobody would be like, oh, you're new here. Oh, when did you start? Yeah, because I'd imagine, and I'm not sure, like, how nursing shifts were structured back then. You know, I mean, nowadays they're on, like, 12-hour shifts, right? You're a day nurse or a night nurse, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. And you're going to work with the same general rotation of people. So, Mm -hmm. and you would think if it was somebody new, then somebody who's, like, the morale person is going to be like, hey, welcome. Who are you? Where are you from? Where'd you go to school? You know, that kind of, like... (laughs) Typical stuff. Like, it just seems weird to me that there would be this, like, interloper that nobody would feel the need to To introduce themselves to or to ask who they were. Well, typically, I believe in hospitals. I'm less familiar with hospitals. Typically, I believe there is a charge nurse. Oh, yeah, there always is. Mm -hmm. That is like, okay, you, you, and you, you've got these rooms. Mm -hmm. You, you, and you, you're on backup, blah, 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 blah. Telling people where to go. And the fact that there is this just like random extra woman coming around. I realized that we didn't have like the check-in and the beep-in systems that we have now. But like, come on. There's just this rando just taking babies. Yeah, and just being around and like going to people's rooms. It's very strange. Mm -hmm. Like I thought it was smart of her as the kidnapper to be like folding laundry and stuff. Because maybe she was trying to blend in with housekeeping. But -hmm. then I feel like you would be suspicious if you saw somebody in housekeeping going around lifting blankets. Well, that was actually some of the tips that they got from the staff was the housekeeping was like, we thought it was weird that there was a nurse folding laundry with us. Mm. They don't do that. Weird. And those were some of the people that were like, yeah, here's the person. Here's who it was. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's just very strange to me. So they would sue the hospital in the amount of a million dollars. I believe that they settled. I don't think that they got the full million dollars, but yeah. Some people kind of mentioned, kind of alluded to the fact that this lawsuit might have been a signal that they were finally kind of forcing themselves to move on, Mm. which I get. They had been sitting in their grief for nearly two years with no forward momentum, no closure, no nothing. So I'm going to leave Dora and Chester there in Chicago and Brighton Park for now. Okay. Okay. Any final thoughts before we move on to our next stage of the story? I'm just, I'm just upset. So you just go ahead and move on. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm on the struggle over here. Stay on the struggle bus. Cause we are going to travel briefly back in time, halfway across the country to New Jersey. 
Mm. To Newark, New Jersey, July 2nd, 1965. A woman is pushing a stroller through a busy shopping center, stops the buggy, and suddenly kind of walks away. Again, initially, it's the 60s. Freedom. Uh, (laughs) Nobody thought that this was totally weird. Nobody thought that this was really crazy. Mm. It wasn't uncommon for people for women to leave kind of the buggy the stroller outside a store run inside grab something and kind of come back in it's very scandinavian that's what literally what i was gonna say Mm. (laughs) i was like in scandinavian countries they do this all the time and it's not considered odd yeah and back in the 60s it was kind of the same way you could leave your baby in the buggy go do your thing come back out and nobody would really think twice about it but As people continued to walk by, time continued to pass, some more time passed, nobody was coming back to pick up this baby. There were a couple store clerks, a couple people that were probably doing some shopping up and down the streets that kind of noticed this baby's been here for quite a while. And then someone finally kind of took a look at the baby and realized that this abandoned baby had a black eye. Oh, God. So eventually the police are called and the baby is taken to the station. They hold the baby for a bit, kind of until the end of the day, assuming that any minute a frantic parent is about to run into the station and be like, oh my God, what happened? Mm -hmm. Kind of thing. But no one ever shows up. So the boy, who they estimated to be about 14 months old, is eventually placed into state care and a foster family is found. Pretty quickly they find a place for this baby to go. Mm. He went to the Eckerts, who were a wonderful New Jersey family with a few children of their own and several foster children. Janet Eckert, who was 17 at the time, said that the family was always busy. It was a little chaotic, but always full of joy from the foster children that they cared for. And the Eckerts happily took in this little foundling, this little abandoned baby with no history, no name, no nothing. Well, police work to find this baby's story. The little boy, the Eckerts would say, was full of love and energy. He loved music, loved attention. He quickly forged a path as a leader amongst the other younger foster kids. (laughs) The only thing that seemed to really stand out to the family was that this baby seemed to have a really quick and a really strong reaction to young men. For example, Janet's boyfriend at the time would often come to visit and hang out with the family, help take care of the babies. They would eventually get married. It's adorable. Um, Everyone is so cute. Everybody's so cute in this story. Um, But our little baby foundling would just immediately start screaming and crying and panicking as soon as Janet's boyfriend would walk in the door. Hmm. That's sad. Given some time, given some love, the baby would acclimate to the family. He adjusted and the fear subsided as and the fear subsided with time. The Eckerts quickly decided that this baby needed a name. He came to them a foundling, a John Doe, but they thought that he deserved more than that. They gave him the name Scott McKinley. They said that they eventually settled on that name because it sounded strong and this baby was clearly a fighter. Oh, it is very stately. Right? Scott McKinley. Yeah, I like that. He came to them alone with a black eye, but that never seemed to really stand in his way of like having all the energy and all the charisma in the world. 
And while Baby Scott played and explored the new his new world with the Eckerts, the police continued to search, putting up missing posters, reaching out to families who reported missing children, interviewing anyone that they had seen, anyone that was there that day that happened to see, did you see who left this stroller? Did you see anything, the color of a coat, hair color, anything? But nothing ever turned up and nobody ever reported a missing child. And then one day, a detective got a little suspicious. He got a little gut instinct remembering this case from over a year ago in Chicago that kidnapped a little boy. The timeline seemed to roughly match. They seemed to be about the same age. So the Newark Police Department reached out to the Chicago PD and eventually to the Franzaks. Dora and Chester immediately traveled across the country in the hopes of finding their long-lost son. Now... In 1965, how do you think they might have proved this? There's no way. There's no good way to do this in 1965. <laughs> there's no good way to do this. What test might they have been able to run in 1965? You're Nothing. not going to guess what, what it is. I mean, is. they didn't have footprints. They didn't have fingerprints. Right. They had no footprints. They had no fingerprints. They could do a blood type guess mm-hmm. based on potential combinations of parent blood types, but... The only way that that really works is if both parents are like O negative. Yeah, yeah. Like the most <laughs> obvious blood type. I I mean, honestly, my my gut tells me that they probably did some sort of like weird test of mother's intuition. Like, was there like a, can you identify this cry or like <laughs> something like that? Like, that's the only thing I could possibly think of. So the doctors put together about 15 to 20 different types of tests. Like I said, blood type analysis, hair color, eye color, these types of things. But what they finally thought was the kicker is ears. Oh, well, yeah. Did you know that ears have distinct patterns of ridges that are completely unique to you and stable from birth? Yes, I did know that. Yeah, see? But I'm sure lots of people don't. Yeah. Very cool. So based on, again, this is not, was never a perfect scientific analysis. And I already read you the letter. So you know where this is going. Mm -hmm. They did a, an analysis of pictures of this baby's ear, along with that one picture that was the only picture that they have of the original baby Franzak, and they declared it a match. And so based on ear ridge analysis, Scott McKinley was de- was determined to be Paul Joseph Franzak. Wow. I was like looking at my ears for a second. I know, right? I mean, super interesting. See, I always think of these people on TikTok who um, are like celebrity conspiracy theorists who think that like Brit- the real Britney Spears is dead and this Britney Spears that we're seeing on Instagram and stuff is a she's a ringer and it all boils down to the ears the ears are different and Katy Perry is JonBenet Ramsey mm-hmm. and Taylor Swift is a clone of <laughs> oh god who is it oh god LeVay LeVay's yeah, daughter yeah LeVay's daughter which is, <laughs> which is my favorite the theory. best one it's the best one <laughs> Um, anyway, back to baby Paul. Mm-hmm. 
So after all the tests and all the stress, the the Eckerts had kind of mixed emotions because like they knew that this baby was only there temporarily. All of their babies were. Um, it seemed like the dad at least had really kind of mixed feelings about like, is, is this right? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But there was like a whole deal about how they never let the Eckerts and the Franzaks meet with the baby together. Oh, Because they thought that that would be, like, too jarring or something. I don't really... Don't totally know their reasoning for that. So the Eckerts dressed him all up in a little cute white suit. And then he was given to, like, one, like, police officer. And then taken to another room where he would meet Dora mm. and Chester. And the second Dora saw this baby, this beautiful little boy, she screamed, Oh my God, that's my baby. Of course she did. Of course she did. How could she not? Yeah. And this baby was beautiful. I think so many of us would have exclaimed the exact same thing in her shoes. Mm-hmm. How could you not? Especially, like, you've gone through all the testing. You've mm-hmm. gone through everything. Like, the officials are telling you that this is your baby. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And hope you floats, are- right? Like, you, you need it to be your baby, right? So, right. Yeah. There were some legal hoops to jump through. So because there was no foolproof way to prove that Scotty was, in fact, baby Franzak, the family had to go through the legal adoption process, which meant a six-month trial period of living with the Franzaks. And interestingly, Dora was also pregnant at the time. Mm. She was getting ready to have her second child, who would be named David, who would be born just later that summer after they were finally reunited with baby Paul. Mm. But of course, like in terms of like the adoption and the legal process, no one, when, no one was trying to stand in the way of this adoption. Mm. They were just like, we just got to check all the boxes. The protocol. Yeah. Yeah. The New Jersey court did nothing to interrupt their travels back to Chicago or the family's ability to continue on with their previous life. And honestly, like, the Franzaks were wonderful, really dedicated parents. They fought for this. Having Paul back was all they ever wanted, honestly. And in November of that year, the adoption was truly finalized, and they felt like they could kind of close this awful chapter in their life. Mm. They had their family reunited, and their family was together. And that's the end of the story, right? Apparently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, just kidding. Mm. This is mid-wretched. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, friends. It gets weird. But again, like, I try to, like, sit and, like, think to myself, like, what would it be like to be, like, Dora and Chester in that moment? Oh, my gosh. Like, you have convinced yourself. You have to force yourself to believe that this is what's happening. Yeah. This is the truth. I mean, your entire life at that point is has been so surreal, right? Mm-hmm. Like the you know the the day after this baby was born up until now has been surreal and deeply strange and mm-hmm. unexplainable and and just like so outside of any possible expected norm like yeah i i would imagine it's hard to know how you would feel but i would imagine just like needing it all to be done like mm-hmm. i this is the resolution great mm-hmm. We're a family again. I don't want to ask that many questions. I just think let's just move on and let's be a family and 
you know? And I think about, like, the personality of this family mm-hmm. and the personality of Dora and Chester. They're a pretty, like, you know, just a humble, pretty stoic little Eastern European family that's yeah. just, like, just give us our, like, two and a half kids, our two-story house. We just and want our normal life alone. back. Yeah, right? So let's, I just want to let them sit in that for a minute, right? Mm. Before I completely, like, tear this apart. Yeah. Baby Paul, I wrote this, baby Paul would grow up to be a Paul. (laughs) (laughs) A true, honest Paul. (laughs) Tell me more. (laughs) He grew up to be a regular Paul. No, baby Paul would grow up and he really, like, like I said, Dora and Chester and even David would grow up to have that kind of very humble, very kind of down-to-earth personality. Chester continued his work as a machinist. Dora was a stay-at-home mom. They eventually moved from Chicago to uh, Oak Lawn, which is kind of a nearby suburb. Dora would, by the sounds of it, from Paul Franzak's memoir, she seemed to be really affected by kind of what happened in a way that made her a very overprotective parent. Mm. More overprotective than the average mother of her time. Kids always had to be within eyesight. There was no playing in the front yard. There were constant check-ins and early curfews. I was hearing a couple of pings of OCD behavior. Constant cleaning, constant checking. And honestly, who can blame her? Yeah. But then there was Paul. Paul, amongst this family of just kind of like laid-back, hardworking, just chill people, he was a full ham. He was an intention seeker. <laughs> he was always the star of the show, as the kids say, main character vibes. And so the joke here is that my brother is also a Paul Joseph, and he <laughs> he's the stereotype, right? <laughs> I said he became a he real, became a, a true, true Paul. Paul. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you gave me the first name, last name, and I was like, oh, all right. <laughs> I didn't even know his middle name was Yeah, Joseph. yeah, yeah. Yeah, first name, middle name. Yep. Oh, that's so funny. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, the two Paul Josephs would probably have gotten along. Probably. Or it would have been just too much and there would have been a, a rip in the space-time continuum. Who knows? If they ever met. Oh, mm-hmm. yes. But our Paul, Paul Franzak, like, since the time he was little, he always loved getting attention. He always loved, you know, being the center of everything. He was a big into like pretend play even like as he got to be an older kid he would always you know be taking on new characters everywhere he went whether he was pretending to be a pirate a tv host a detective anything there are some videos of him in the lost sons documentary where he is just like hamming up the camera and just like pushing everybody out of the way like ready for his spotlight yeah And as he grew up, this never really kind of changed. He loved music. He was outgoing, especially compared to the family that he grew up in. He was a little bit of a rebel, sneaking out of the house, sneaking in girls, staying out too late. He recalled that he really just kind of never fit into his family. And he says they were a wonderful family. They were very loving. But that quiet suburban life was just not something that was in him. Mm. And, you know, I feel like every kid at some point gets that feeling of, like, was I switched at birth? Was I secretly adopted? It was a genre that I really enjoyed reading as, like, a preteen. 
<laughs> like <laughs> that set of like YA novels that were popular at that time. Oh, about was, being switched I don't at birth. remember those. Oh yeah, I got. I had my hands on every switched at birth novel that the <laughs> the snow branch of the Dearborn Public Library had available. <laughs> like. I can see that. I can see that. I uh, there is no argument that can be made that I was switched at birth. <laughs> no, <laughs> this nose came from somewhere. It sure. Well, your entire being, being a copy paste of your father, is is pretty much that. So, <laughs> love you, Mike. <laughs> well, many kids. I think. Well, you can relate to Paul's being like, "Why are all these weird people around me that I cannot relate to?" Mm-hmm. But that was also kind of like his entire life, right? Like that was all he knew. Like Paul was found slash adopted at two, two and a half. He had no memory of any of it. He was always just like, this is just my family and I'm just the weird one. I'm just the black sheep. Mm -hmm. Until he was about 10 years old. And Paul, like the sneaky, rebellious kid that he was, was hunting around the house for Christmas presents. And trying to think, okay, where, where would my parents hide Christmas presents? He goes into the crawl space of his house thinking, ah, this is, if there's anything, it's in the crawl space. But what he finds instead of Christmas presents is piles of newspaper clippings. They didn't tell him? About a missing boy with his name. They never told him. Wow. So Paul, at 10 years old, is reading through these papers and he was like, who is this? Who's this boy with my name? Are these about me? And runs to his mom to show them and be like, what, what's going on? Oh, I just got chills. Dora's face went white. She snapped the papers out of his hand and says, you were kidnapped. We found you. We love you. We will never talk about this again. Hmm. And 10 year old Paul got that message loud and clear. He closed the crawl space door and never went back in there. Hmm. yeah chills right oh man that's got me so messed up (laughs) but okay so you take this like overly imaginative little boy who already loves the idea of being the main character Mm -hmm. and then you add this to his story Mm -hmm. right yeah totally he can't forget about this even though like his family was quiet about it they kept it to themselves they weren't attention seekers And they truly never spoke of this again. Mm. They never brought it up to him. It was no, no conversation afterward. No, here's what happened. Here's why we didn't tell you, blah, blah, blah. And I don't want to say that this reaction like alienated Paul, but like it definitely, I think from there on out, created some friction, Mm. you know, where he already felt it. He already felt like he didn't fit in. He would look at his brother, David, who seemed to be always just at ease with his parents, whereas Paul and his parents were always butting heads. Mm. It also, I think as he got older, was like, you know, Dora was always still overprotective of him, even into his teen years, and Paul didn't get it. He was a rebel in his spirit, and it just didn't quite work out between the two of them. Mm. The only other time during his childhood that it is ever mentioned is, like I said, he was a very rebellious teenager. He never listened to his parents. There were constant fights. And at one point, you know, in his memoir, he's talking about this particular story, and he's like, I don't even remember especially what the trigger was, but we were arguing. It got really, really bad one day, and his mother yelled, I wish we'd never found you. (gasps) 
That's a dagger to the stomach. Right? And, like, I don't want to dive into this because, like, Paul and David both talk about, like, Dora and Chester were wonderful parents. Paul sounds like he did not make it easy for them to be parents. (laughs) (laughs) He tested, like, their every wit's end. But... I don't know if you really want to know more kind of about the ins and outs of that life I would really recommend um his memoir The Foundling or The Lost Sons the documentary mm. which are really really great because like damned if Paul didn't spend his entire life in an identity crisis yes beyond who am I it just, that led to him just like flitting from job to job from relationship to relationship mm. When he was, like, 18, he just randomly moved across the country against his parents' wishes to join a band. (laughs) I feel a kindred spirit to poor Paul. (laughs) He would take a million different jobs. He was a musician. He was a store manager. He was a salesman. He was an actor. Uh, He played a stand-in for George Clooney in Ocean's Eleven. Really? Yeah, there's a couple of times where you see the back of George Clooney's head. That's Paul Franzak. Cool. He was in a TSA safety training video. Hmm. Um, and my favorite, he was in a Star Trek live action adventure. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. One of those ones where like the characters guide you through. Oh like, my gosh, how fun things. is that? And I have to say he does have some serious Captain Pike vibes. Really? Really? Like I say he has Captain Pike vibes, like Captain Pike vibes from like New Trek Strange New Worlds. Not, like, childhood nightmares of, like, the Star Trek, the original series that I still have nightmares about to this day, Captain Pike. Uh, I mean, I have a lot to say about this. Mm-hmm. And Go for it. Go for it. At, at the, I, I'm not going to air out all of my dirty laundry, but in significantly different situations. Mm-hmm. But I certainly feel like I can speak to how disruptive it is to one's psyche to have unearthed a family secret that like rewrites your sense of self. Right. Yeah. Or rewrites your sense of your own childhood or your own history. Mm-hmm. And this is something that happened to me. Uh, and this happened to me as an adult. So it was a different experience than like figure finding something out as a child. But mm-hmm. what I could superimpose is like how messed up it's been for me to navigate this like rewriting and rethinking about my entire history and my entire past and my family and and where I come from and and who I'm related to um how much it's disrupted my psyche as an adult Mm -hmm. with um you know an otherwise like well-adjusted life and a really good therapist and good (laughs) friends and a good marriage and you know, a a generally good life, like, I, it it has still, like, leveled me in ways that I can't even describe adequately. Um, So to think about a child discovering Mm -hmm. something like that, and having to navigate that at a time when they're forming their identity so strongly. Yeah. Like, I don't see how that's not going to make you feel just endlessly unmoored. Yeah. You know? Yeah, like, how do you ever feel stable or secure in who you are? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, or that you can trust where you come from, or that you can trust what people tell you about where you come from, you know? And knowing that that question and that insecurity is completely... It's unwelcome. 
unwelcome. And that is something I can very much relate to. And so it's like, you're, you know, there's this like shutdown of like, you're not going to get the help navigating it, right? Mm-hmm. So he's going to find his own ways of moving through the world that makes sense to him or that makes sense to his like identity building, I guess. And mm-hmm. I just really, really empathize with that. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, this got me so messed up. <laughs> this got me real fucked up. <laughs> Woo! All right. <laughs> All right. This is like, uh, we're just doing like more narrative therapy. This is what we call this. Yes. Yeah, sorry, friends, for my side quest there, but... All that to say, I feel like his his behaviors make perfect sense to me. His choices make oh, yeah. perfect sense to me. Like, one hundred percent. Even it's oh, he's cute. There's like a part in the documentary where he like says something. Just kind of like off the cuff of like, but he says something that's kind of like insensitive to like not thinking about his parents' feelings about what he does. Mm. And he's like, oh, God, people are going to fucking hate me. And I'm sitting here. I'm like, I get it. Yeah, totally. Like, I fully get, like, there's a point of, like, I have to know who I am. And I really, I can't even conceive that you don't support me in this. Mm. Mm. Preach, Paul. Yeah. Yeah. So, again, Paul is kind of going through his life. He he knows this kind of and not even a secret, but he knows this fact about himself in the back of his head. And it that's where it lives. Mm. It just lives in the back of his head, this kind of creeping, crawling question. But it's not out there. It's not present. It's not processed in any way, shape, or form. Mm. So eventually Paul would settle down in 2004. He would meet a wonderful woman, a teacher named Michelle. Get it. Good job, girlfriend. Leave it to a teacher to finally settle a man down. Mm-hmm. Um, despite his rebelliousness, his attention-loving, wishy-washy traits, <laughs> she said that he felt completely down to earth. He was sweet and kind, and that sh- she said, quote, he seemed like a lost puppy at times. Aww. He had shared with her early in their relationship about the kidnapping and how he was found... She said that he kind of mentioned it in a really matter-of-fact way. And Paul himself admits that he would often kind of tell the story jokingly, kind of flirtatiously, kind of as like, oh, you want to hear a crazy story? I do the exact same thing. thing. Oh, yeah, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) But again, it was kind of one of those things that wasn't really processed as a trauma, really wasn't processed in that way. But that changed entirely when Michelle got pregnant. And in the preparations for the baby, the doctor had asked Paul, okay, tell me about your family history. Any diagnosis, diseases, allergies? You know, those questions I'm sure you get asked still to this to this day oh, yeah. when you have a baby. Full family yeah. history, yeah. And it was in that moment that all of that doubt, all of that questioning that had he had tucked into the back of his mind suddenly flooded forward. Hmm. Who really am I? What is my family history? I can't say anything with full confidence about Mm, it. Yeah. And now, holy fuck, there's consequences to what I do and don't know about myself. Hmm. And after his daughter, Emma Faith, 
was born, he realized that he had to have answers to these questions. What is in my genetics? Who am I? And it took a lot of courage, but with the support of his wife, in his late 40s, Paul finally confronted his parents. Wow. They were visiting the family in their Las Vegas home. They had been there for like a week or more, just like they wanted to visit the baby, their grandparents, very excited kind of thing. And on the last day of their visit, they sat down at the breakfast table. Paul had bought a couple of DNA kits that he just picked up like from the store, like at Walgreens. And he tries to go about it very casually. And he says, hey, I got these, I got these DNA tests. Would you be willing to do this for me? With no prep, no further explanation, no nothing. Oh, jeez. Dora and Chester seemed a little caught off guard, but also kind of meeting his casualness. We're just like, yeah, yeah, sure, we'll do that. Hmm. And they all sat at the table, took their DNA tests, and then got up and left for the airport. It's the most awkward family breakfast ever. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> If you ever thought that you'd have an awkward family breakfast. That's, that's bad. That's bad. <laughs> and I imagine it was an awkward car ride to the airport and an awkward flight home. Because once Dora and Chester got back to Chicago, they called and asked Paul to not send in the DNA kits. <laughs> and although he initially agreed to not send them when he was on the phone, the drive to know who he was eventually just kind of took over. And after a period of time of kind of mulling on it, he sent the test kits in. And, you know, it takes several weeks, about six weeks or so to get your test results back. But eventually he would get a call from the DNA testing company. And that call would confirm there is no way, Paul Franzak, that you are the child of Dora and Chester Franzak. Uh, uh, chills again. This poor family. I know. Like, I can only imagine what was going through his head at the time. At, at one point, it's like all of this doubt and all of this grief. But at the other side, it's like... Vindication in a way. Like, I always knew yeah. that I was different. Or I always knew that, you know, maybe, why does David look like Uncle So-and-so and I don't? Or whatever, mm -hmm. you know? And he said... You know, at that time, kind of everything he knew about himself just kind of vanished. Like, everything wiped the sleep clean as far as my identity. Ugh. And I am sure that he did a whole lot of processing over many, many days and weeks with his wife. And he decided he needed more answers. Like, this was not the end for him. He needed to know who he was, and he needed to know, like, what happened to the real baby Franzak. Eventually, this would lead him to reach out to a local journalist, someone with more resources and more know-how, because Paul is like, I have a big mystery about my life and no tools to go about <laughs> yeah. investigating. He's like, I am an actor, and mm. I, have not, I have no knowledge of how to do this. So the person, that journalist that he would reach out to was George Knapp. Do you know anything? Does the name George Knapp ring a bell to you at all? I don't think so. Should it? The name might not, but I'm going to read some things that he is associated with. Mm. Coast to Coast AM. Mm. Some books and documentaries on Bob Lazar and an apparent UFO whistleblower. 
His work in investigations on Skinwalker Ranch and the missing 411. Oh, well, how about that? Okay. So real serious journalist here. Real serious. I just watched the missing 411 this afternoon. I'm sure you did. (laughs) (laughs) You weirdo. Thanks. I have seen uh, the Skinwalker Ranch and the Bob Lazar documentaries multiple times. Yeah, yeah. George Knapp is not just a crazy UFO guy. I think that he does a lot of that stuff. It brings in a lot of money. True. But he actually d- has done a lot of work on, like, missing child cases and things mm, like that. That's good so he is a legit investigative journalist who did a lot of work exploring government conspiracies, missing persons, odd events, that sort of thing. And, I mean, come on. This is an odd event. It is at that. Yeah. Um, and on, he was honestly just like a well-known journalist in the Las Vegas area. So, yeah. and I mean, he is going to be like well-resourced and. Mm-hmm. So George Knapp, uh, eventually did agree to take on the case and with Knapp's connections, it led to a lot of publicity on the case. It wasn't long before a local news program picked up the story and eventually, and would do a video and kind of a mini documentary that would eventually <laughs> go national. But before, literally the night before that little mini documentary went national, Paul still hadn't talked to his parents. Oh, Paul! About what had happened. Come on. Uh, they still didn't know that he had gotten the test done or that it confirmed that they were not his parents. There's just a lot of like traumatic avoidance going on mm-hmm. in this entire story. Oof. Yeah, because either they're Uh, not talking or every time they do talk and they're like, what are you up to these days? He's just like, oh, you know, just like gardening and doing doing whatever, you know, conversations with my mom. (laughs) Uh, I know we're making a lot of jokes about this. I do feel like there's a lot of emotion behind this. But again, we have to deal with it with humor, right? Yeah, like it's just it is all of it is just it's really it's it's tough. It's hard. It's. You know, there's nothing, I feel like there's not a lot that's harder to navigate than messed up family dynamics and, like, secrets and communication and lack therein and just all of it is just, it's hard to deal with. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, and I don't feel like anybody is good at it in the moment, even if you are somebody who's, like, otherwise, like, trained and equipped to do this stuff for other people. It, it might not necessarily be that you could do it for yourself. It's a different thing, you know? Mm-hmm. It is. And again, these are situations that it is impossible to have a plan to deal with. Yeah. Like, I can have a plan and I can ready my coping skills if, like, my parent gets sick or something like that happens, something common happens. Mm-hmm. There's no way you can ready your brain for you were kidnapped as a baby and then you were returned, but it was the wrong kid. Yeah. Yeah, there's no, there's no preparing you for that. Yeah, there's no. no preparing you for that. There's no, and there's no book that you can pick up at Barnes and Noble that's like how to deal with the fallout of your kidnapping and finding out that you're not who you thought you were for 48 years. So you're a foundling. <laughs> yeah, that does not exist. <laughs> so the night before that news story broke on television, Paul wrote that email that I read at the very beginning. Mm. Yeah. How do you think his parents took that? I mean, we don't know. I You haven't said much about Chester's personality other than that he's 
probably very much like of his generation. It sounds like he is like, my great grandpa. You know? <laughs> so if I imagine everything I know about your little Jage and you know, <laughs> I mean. I would imagine that Dora has completely come unwound, you know, like she's really, it sounds like she's worked really hard to stay like over collected mm-hmm. over the years about this. And, and the, you know, I picture her just like scooping up at control wherever she can get it. And it's like mm-hmm. sand going through her fingers, right? Like you can't hang on to that control. And now it's like every last, whatever last little bit of it that she had. It's just, it's it's gone now. She has no control. It's, it's absolutely gone. They did not call him back that day. They waited a little bit. They would eventually finally return his message. Dora would call in absolute hysterics, crying, how could you do this to us? You don't like us as parents. You want to find other parents. Hmm. And broke down on the phone. Chester would quickly take the phone from her hand and in a straight voice say, you're an asshole. Oh. And hang up the phone. Wow. It's, oh my gosh. I mean, here's the other thing too, right? Like they hoped for this entire time that he truly was their baby. And... the trauma that they're going through now, too, 48 years later, is unreal. Like, this is the biggest, like, hold two things mm-hmm. moment, right? Yeah. Because, like, Paul is feeling like, I don't know who I am. I'm not your son. I was a proxy. I was a replacement. I was never who you thought I was. I was never who I thought I was. And he didn't know, he didn't understand. Why wouldn't you want to know the truth? Yeah. Why wouldn't you want to know who your real son is? But for Dora and Chester, like, now you're just reopening this trauma. Yeah. You're just ripping their hearts open and just being like, here you go. Not only just, like, the trauma of, like, them losing their child and, you know, missing him for nearly two years, but then the interviews, the media calls, the hounding, all Mm -hmm. of that. And they, I mean, they raised him, they loved him, they took care of him, mm-hmm. they, you know, he is their baby, like, mm-hmm. he's not their biological baby, but he's their baby, and the idea of, like, your own, your baby being so, I don't know, operating in what feels like such the opposite of your best interests in a way, like, that's that's gut-wrenching, too, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like you've poured your entire life into raising this human and and it just it's going to rip apart their their sense of self too it's going to rip apart everything that they know about their own life as well and i i mean i can't imagine that they didn't have their own questions along the way too mm-hmm. but you stuff it sounds like if they had them they probably stuffed them down right mm-hmm. i think they would have been perfectly happy to die just no just Assuming that Paul was their child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but I don't think that Paul would have been happy to know that. No. And you like, can't blame anybody here for their reactions whatsoever. Because everybody is right. Yeah. yeah. Like, everybody's right. Emotionally speaking, everybody is right. Mm-hmm. You know? Paul was right to do what he did. His parents were right to react the way that they did. Yeah. And I think I, I feel bad because it doesn't... He doesn't really get 
too much attention but david his brother was like right in the middle of all of this kind of torn between the two yeah yeah i think that it was rough for his brother this is slightly an aside but like so paul didn't talk to anyone to dora chester or his brother for years after this first happened Mm. um and eventually the reason why he kind of started talking to david again was that david came out as gay Mm. And was having a hard time kind of adjusting and being accepted by his family then. And God, Mm. it's just, just a mess. Yeah, I just feel awful for everybody involved. (sighs) Yeah. So, yeah, it was, it was a rough couple of years, I think. And in the same way that Dora kind of threw herself into that, like, intense control seeking Paul threw himself into this intense mystery solving. Mm-hmm. Everything, every minute of his day went into this. Yeah. And over the years, he was involved in interviews, news reports. There were 2020 episodes, Chicago Tribune headlines. Everything was all over because he was like, the more information is out there, the more I can, the more chances there are to solve, there are to solve this mystery. Now, so there was a bunch of news going around everywhere because suddenly like, oh, the baby Franzak, that was not solved. He also accidentally embarrassed the FBI. Oh. Because the FBI thought that this was a closed case. Mm. And suddenly it was not. They had their so, ears. They thought they were done. Yeah, they matched ears, man. So all of that was going on. But then in the background, who do you think is really going to solve this mystery? Uh, women with podcasts close women with ancestry accounts hell yeah (laughs) (laughs) because who gets involved but our favorite dna detective from parabon labs cc moore cc's back cc's back we love cc get it cc (laughs) not just cc but a team of several other women who call themselves the search angels Mm. DNA detectives that worked incredibly hard on this case. Like, okay, Paul openly admits uh, he doesn't know dick about DNA, Mm. anything about DNA. All he knows is, okay, so now they have, in 2012 when he did the original test, those tests weren't super sophisticated, not like the ones that we have now. Mm -hmm. But as time went on, like the DNA tests that we have now through Ancestry and 23andMe and all of that stuff, you can connect them through, we talked about this with the little Jane Doe, but you can connect all of the different DNA tests, build your family tree, all of that good stuff. So they got in touch with him and they were like, okay, like, here's what you need to do. You need to take a DNA test on all of the major websites, <laughs> all of the major pr- providers, Ancestry, 23andMe, Family Tree, DNA. Do your test on all of those different ones. See if there's any matches, anything comes up. We will do the groundwork because these women are absolutely amazing. Mm. So Paul does that. He takes his ancestry DNA test um, in in a kind of a desperate bid to search for family. And, you know, when he gets his DNA test back, I am just imagine this is just a really sad moment for him because he puts up his DNA, he gets on the website when the search angels have done all their work and, you know, it brings up your family tree and there's nothing. Mm. It's absolutely nothing and nobody. It's just him. 
Oh, poor Paul. He's just a dot with no connections. But, of course, they're not going to let that happen. They're not going to let that stand. Because people are uploading and connecting every single day. And eventually, after many, many months, a second cousin pops up. Mm-hmm. Uh, a second cousin, a man named Alan Fish. He was a married man living in New York at the time. Second cousins means that they share great-grandparents. Okay? So Alan reaches out to Paul immediately upon finding his match. Alan was just as excited because Alan himself had no connections to the outside world. Hmm. He was adopted and he had no biological connections, no, no, no known information about any siblings, anything. So as excited as Paul was to be like, oh, I have a family connection and there's somebody that shares my DNA. <laughs> At the same time, it's also kind of like sad because it's like, you and I are just out here, just like floating branches. Mm. But on the bright side, what Alan did have was legal records because he had been legally adopted. Now, they would have to eventually petition to have his legal records unsealed. That would take, obviously, weeks and weeks to get like petitions through the courts. And, God, I hate this. So Alan and Paul set up to meet so that they could go get they were going to go like get his adoption records together and go investigate all of it together they had like this date set up and it sounded very cute just days before alan and paul were set to meet for the first time alan died of a sudden heart attack no yeah paul had finally found this one connection in his life and it was just as quick as it came into his life it was taken away Now, Alan did have a wife, and she was really obviously, like, grieving. She had this absolute sudden traumatic loss. And she was ready to just kind of end the search and just be like, I can't deal with this right now. Whatever. This isn't, this was not my story. I don't, I can't continue to take it. But it was um, Alan and her children that said, no, you have to do this for dad. Mm -hmm. Like, dad would have wanted you to continue doing this. So they continue to petition. They eventually get the adoption records unsealed, which led them to Alan's biological mother. So now we're one step closer to a connection. Mm. Now, sadly, when they contacted Alan's mother, she denied ever having the child. She denied ever having any child around that time. Based on the records, she would have been incredibly young when she had Alan. Mm. Like, we're talking 16-ish. Oh, yeah. Although a father was not listed on the adoption records, God bless the DNA detectives. They're freaking amazing (laughs) because they never stop. Like, they don't let shit like this ever stop them. They did a really deep record search, like, literally just going house by house in the neighborhood of the mother. Wow. um, To see, like, who could this person have been. And they eventually find a man named Lenny Rocco. Lenny Rocco was a boxer who grew up in a neighborhood with Alan's mother. He was a neighborhood friend of the birth mother. According to Rocco, he described their relationship as five seconds, maybe ten. Woof. Woof. Just a girl he hooked up with. Yeah. Not very flattering to your own skills, bud. Yeah, right? I mean, he had to be like 16 at the time, too, so I'm not going to hate. But Rocco... 
when he met up with the team of like the DNA detectives, he was absolutely elated to hear that he had a son. He never knew his wow. entire life. Rocco was an older guy in his 60s. And again, if we talk about like emotional roller coasters, he learned that he had a son and then that his son died in the series of a couple sentences. Mm. But he wanted to stay involved in the search anyway. Good for him. Now, DNA tests confirmed that Rocco was biologically related to Paul. So we have like a branch over here that's Paul. We have a branch over here that's Alan. And then we have up here, we have Rocco. Mm. That's amazing work from the DNA detectives too, because they, you wouldn't have found Paul connected to the birth mother anyway. You would have needed Rocco. Mm -mm. So Yeah, exactly. Yeah, good for them. And that was exactly what they were able to confirm. So Rocco submitted his DNA and they found that Rocco was related to Paul and that one of Rocco's cousins had to be Paul's birth parents. Mm. So they started working on Rocco's family tree. <laughs> I, like, I just, I find this absolutely amazing how hard these people work. Yeah. And I think it's really reflective of, like, DNA testing is not as simple as people think that it is. Mm-mm. So they start working on Rocco's family tree. Rocco had two brothers, one who passed away and one who had just randomly disappeared. The amount of genograms and family trees and branching that goes into this is absolutely insane. It is months and months and months of work. They would eventually find the ex-wife of the disappeared brother (laughs) who was willing to talk. Hmm. And the ex-wife of the disappeared brother was able to eventually kind of trace back to, okay, well, there was this other branch of the family, the Rosenthal's. Let me tell you about the Rosenthal's. Gilbert and Marie. Gilbert and Marie Rosenthal lived in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Part of a pretty big extended family. And much of this information comes from the few people that they were able to connect with. The ex-wife who chose to remain anonymous. And the second and an identified second cousin named Toby Dresner. And a woman named Susan Walhurt who would come forward as a former babysitter for the Rosenthal's. So the Rosenthal's had three children. And then in October of 1963, they also gave birth to a set of twins. The DNA detectives were able to validate that they had these set of twins because it was written up in a newspaper of like significant dates because the twins were born on the same birthday as the oldest child. Mm. So again, just like, here's how we do this. It's weird records and weird things that we don't even keep track of anymore. The Rosenthal's twins were named Jack and Jill. Very creative. Here's what we know about them. So Gilbert Rosenthal was a Vietnam veteran. Although he was described as a pretty typical amiable New Jersey guy before the war, when he came back from the war, he was... He came back with shell shock. Mm -hmm. He suddenly came back as distant, angry, and impulsive. People described him as just a terrifying person to be around. Marie was known to be a passive woman, somebody that let Gilbert take the lead and make all of the the decisions. There's not much else that we know about these two, other than the fact that they had these five children. They had the three older set. They had the three older children and then the younger set of twins. 
There's one picture that they were able to find of Marie while she was pregnant with the twins. She seems happy. She seems smiling. Nothing odd stood out about her. But that had to be a very different story than what was happening at home. Because I'm going to share a story from Susan Walhurt, who was the babysitter for the Rosenthal's. Now, Susan typically uh, worked for their neighbor, for the Rosenthal's neighbor. But while she was leaving one day, Marie stopped her and asked her if she could watch, hey, can you watch my two oldest girls? Those are, you just really need to watch the older kids. Don't worry about the twins. They're just don't, they're, they're upstairs. You don't even need to worry about them. And Susan said, yeah, sure, I'll babysit. But that's kind of weird. Yeah. To say just ignore two of your children. Yeah, ignore my two most fragile children. Susan thought it was weird because, like she, like I said, she had babysat for the neighbors. So she saw the older kids running around, but she didn't even realize that they had twins. And so while she was at the Rosenthal's house watching the older ones, they seemed well cared for. She wasn't really worried about them. She was told, you know, they could do whatever, eat whatever, you know, just make sure that they don't hurt anything. But Susan, of course, is curious she's like well i gotta check on the babies i know they told me not to worry about them but like i have to right Mm -hmm. so she went upstairs to the twins room the room that she entered was absolutely bare it had only two cribs inside no toys no clothes no comforts the room smelled it reeked of urine the babies were dirty in desperate need of a change The baby boy had a black eye. Oh, God. Susan said that baby Jack looked afraid and baby Jill, quote, she was so quiet, like she was resigned to the fact that this is what life is. Susan could not stand the sight of it. And she took the babies. She cleaned them up. She fed them. She tried to give them some love and a little bit of comfort before she left for the night. When Marie and Gilbert returned that night and came home, They were furious, screamed at Susan for even tending to the babies, screaming and kicking her out, telling her to never come back. Susan went home that night and told her mother about what happened. And her mom said, it's none of your business. Don't ever go into the house again. You let that be. Oof. Which unfortunately wasn't really common attitude at the time. Yeah. In the documentary, so in Lost Sons, they interview Susan And she seems really, really broken up about what happened. Yeah. She, you know, talks about she's always felt guilty. She, you know, she was really young. And she was like, I didn't know what to do. I did what my mother told me to do. But I've always questioned what, you know, what was going to happen to those kids. Yeah. When they were eventually, the DNA detectives and the people involved in this case, when they were able to get a hold of, like, extended family members of the Rosenthal's, They would report that, like, yeah, one day the twins just disappeared. One day the twins were there and then they just weren't. But they were all too scared because they all knew about Gilbert's temper. They didn't want to say anything. They didn't want to set him off. They knew if they asked, it was not going to go well. There were obviously rumors flying around the family and flying around, you know, anybody who knew that the twins existed But Gilbert and Marie just said that something happened to the twins. They died. They were sick. Whatever. Anything that they can kind of get away with saying. And it was always just kind of this unspoken mystery within the family. 
It was just a family secret. So thanks to the DNA donated by Rocco, Toby Dresner, and others, I think eventually some of the siblings would donate DNA, um, but remained anonymous. None of them wanted to speak about the case. Mm. And Paul Franzak, after four decades of confusion and identity conflicts, would be confirmed to be Jack Rosenthal. Wow. The little boy with the black eye that was abandoned on the sidewalk in New Jersey in 1965. What about Jill? That's a good question. Mm. We still have no idea what ever happened to Jill. Wow. Jill has never been found. There have been no remains that have been able to be identified as Jill. Um, And no one has spoken that they know anything about what happened to her. Mm. This has been a kind of continuing question that Paul can't let go. So Paul still goes by the name Paul Franzak. Yeah, obviously. That is his name. You know, when he heard this story... Most of it he heard from the babysitter. He heard it from some extended family members as well. You know, he's recognizing that he was taken from what sounds like a really dark and dangerous biological home yeah. to one that was loving and warm and nurturing. And yeah. And so he's always continued to go by the name of Paul Franzak. And there's, oh my gosh, there's a really, really cute moment in the documentary where he's sitting with his daughter. And (laughs) they're just like at a diner and, you know, they're chatting and whatever. And his daughter, who's probably like eight or nine. And she's like, wait, so how many names do you have? (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, Jack Rosenthal, Scott McKinley, and Paul Franzak, and he's like, what's the most important one? And she's like, Dad. Oh, so Why are you so cute? That's, oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, you could just end the story here. Yeah. But we don't. <laughs> By this time, Paul had made up with Dora and Chester. Um, they were talking again. Paul is now very dedicated and continues to be dedicated trying to figure out what happened to Jill. Well, what about that is go ahead. What about yep. the real baby Paul Franzak? Where's the real biological Paul Franzak? Yeah. So very good question. A question that would be answered excruciatingly slowly and with very, very little detail given. So in 2019, so this is after this search has been going on for seven years now. Mm. Um, seven years of work, publicity on this case, getting it out there in people's eyes. A young woman in Michigan submitted her DNA testing. And she popped up as a distant match to Dora and Chester. The DNA detectives reached out to her to gather more information. Now, we don't have too much information from here on out because this family has chosen to remain incredibly private. Mm. That girl that submitted her dna to testing would eventually from the kind of questioning of the dna detectives would ask her father if he would submit dna based on her results she says i'm connected to these people and that means you are and when his came his results came in it was a verified match 
that he was the direct descendant, the child of Dora and Chester Franzak. A man just living four hours from Chicago and Michigan. Oh my God. Who worked his entire life as a machinist, just like Chester. Oh, stop. Now I'm going to (laughs) cry. How? His daughter saw it online. She saw one of the stories and said, that looks like my dad. That looks like something. So, whoa. Okay, so does this man know where he came from? Like, where where does this man think he came from? (laughs) There's not too much information. Like I said, this family has chosen to be incredibly private. So, ugh. So at the same time that this man got his test results to find out that he was baby Franzak, he also got news that he had terminal cancer. Jesus. In the short time that he had left, he had a handful of phone calls with Dora. By the time he was identified, Chester had passed away. Mm. But in 2020... Dora was able to hear the voice of her biological son, a child that she had not seen since he was only a day old. They were able to speak randomly, including one day on Christmas. They made plans to meet together, but unfortunately he passed away from cancer. Mm. After he passed away, his family did reveal his name. His name was Kevin Beatty. He was raised his entire life by a single mother in a small town in Michigan. Now, there is no certainty that the woman that raised him was the kidnapper. Mm. His children have not spoken of it. Wow. But he lived his life only four hours away from his biological parents, never knowing that he was the kidnapped baby. He knew nothing of this story. He had never had a suspicion of it in his life. Wow. God, this is... I am so messed up, dude. I have, like, goosebumps (laughs) all over my body. (sighs) Oh, man. I mean, it's like, it's so... It's so good that so much of this got figured out. It's so Mm -hmm. gut-wrenching how much of it, like, gets figured out just in time for it to not be able to be really, like, thoroughly dug into by those to whom it matters the most. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Yeah. God, that's so tragic. I just... Does his mother resemble the sketch? Like, who... What is going on here? You know... He lived in Michigan his entire life, raised by his parents, Robert and Lorraine Fountain. Um, I'm just going to read a segment from Wikipedia, what it says on Wikipedia about his history, because we know very little. Um, It says that Beatty was raised by Lorraine Fountain, who had been dating a doctor from Chicago when she suddenly moved to Arkansas for a year and then returned with baby Paul, who was raised as Kevin Beatty. Lorraine Fountain died in 2004. It is unclear how Kevin got the last name Beatty. And to this day, they have never been able to identify who kidnapped baby Paul Franzak. Mm. Technically, it's still an open FBI investigation. I mean, I hope they 
have a dude working on it just to <laughs> just to give us some closure just to be able to say i mean i think that you know i think that paul franzak deserves that i think that mm-hmm. i think kevin Beatty's daughter deserves that too mm-hmm. you know because it's, it's her history too yeah. um yikes i th- i think that really the biggest you know the the biggest question that paul has been left with in his writings is you know he knows who he is now he knows who the real paul is he was able to connect his mother with the real paul now he wants to know what happened to my twin sister i think he's in that place of like that you know optimistic place of i think she could still be alive but also realizing that the chances of that are incredibly low i mean what are the odds though of of his story mm-hmm. really like how often do you hear about a baby left abandoned somewhere and then you know almost 50 years later he's alive and well and figures out who he is like mm-hmm. i mean i I, f- yeah. I feel like logically like yeah that that doesn't seem super likely but at the same time like this case defies all logic mm-hmm. i mean every yeah, right? every single part of this has been like wait what <laughs> did that really happen so every sentence of this case is another like spiral down statistically insignificant la- or statistically significant rarity yeah yeah like. i mean i mean who knows like someone's got to dig into any other babies found at the same approximate space of time you know mm-hmm. Parabon Labs has done your favorite they've done a sketch based on <laughs> again a guess of DNA analysis based on Paul's DNA yeah, right yeah what would a female version look like yeah so I'm going to send you I don't like that I can't just copy paste images into it's annoying chats. isn't it yeah it's okay. I'll just send you the link. So this is the sketch of Jill Rosenthal. Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Mm. I just really, really, really hope that he finds his answers. I do too. Whatever. I it mean, is. he's found so many of them already. Yeah. And I think it really speaks to his like just dedication. Yeah. To all of this. He's never let this go. This has been going on for 12 years now since he just started on this journey. Mm. I mean, really, it's been going on his entire life. Yeah, but... I mean, I don't know how you could ever give up on it, you know? Like, there are so many questions, and yeah, it seems like every time he unearths something, five questions pop up in its place, you know? Yeah, right. I mean, I really, really do recommend people read Paul's memoir, that they watch The Lost Sons, like... And like I've said before, recommend people, if you are comfortable with it, do your DNA kit. See if maybe you can help solve any of these cases. Yeah. Wow. I, um, 
I'm so rarely rendered speechless, but <laughs> this just got me so all kinds of messed up that I I don't have any um, quality things to say. <laughs> I'm just really messed up about this. You requested a story with a happy ending, a story where somebody gets found, something gets solved. Yeah. Did I deliver? Well, you, Was I able to give you that? You delivered an incredible case and an incredible story. Do I feel joy? <laughs> Do I look like I feel joy to you? <laughs> I tried. I know you did a great it's job. Hard. This was an amazing story. I just am like I'm floored. I mean, everything about this is like impossible. It mm-hmm. seems like right. Like I feel like it would take an endlessly creative person to write this as fiction. And if somebody wrote this as fiction, I'd be like, oh my god! Like shut take up. one detail out. Like it's, yeah, it's a little too much. But like Coco, Nich- Coco Chanel said, take one thing off before you leave the house. I was just take about one to thing say the same story. thing. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but no, like I would, I would think like everything about this is so unbelievable that it just kind of defies my sense of like, well, of course this, this, this happened. Like, you know what? No, I'm not even going to pretend to offer that for this story because everything about this has just defied all sense. There's a lot of cases that we have where we can be like, oh, yeah, this makes sense in this tracks, and mm-hmm. I can see how they got from here to there. This one, I'm like, I don't... Like, there's still so... Like, as much information as they were able to uncover, the biggest questions are still there. Yeah. Who kidnapped this baby? Mm-hmm. Why? What happened to Jill? Why was Jack abandoned? Yeah. And, you know, I I want to know... And I, I just, I hope that Kevin lived his life happily. I hope that he grew up too. safe and happy and that he wasn't scared and, you know, that he didn't have, I wonder if he had the same kind of questions that Paul has, mm-hmm. you know, I wonder if he felt that nagging sense of, I don't think I'm quite a fit here, mm-hmm. but if he did, we we won't know that unless somebody close to him like feels like saying that to somebody. But I just I yeah. I hope that he was well. I guess you know. I do. I wonder if his daughters will ever kind of tell more of his story. And I mean, it's not necessarily their story to tell, so I get it. And I don't know how much of their story of his story they have. Yeah, you know. Yeah, that's the thing, and it might not be that much. Like if. If they wanted to keep it really quiet and private, then maybe they're just, maybe they didn't know that much. Yeah. You know, maybe they didn't know that much. Yeah. Good gracious, dude. That is the story of our foundling. Wow. Well, I'm glad I didn't look into any of that because I, um, I am really just like emotionally exhausted now from all that. I didn't, I didn't want you to look into any of it because I knew that once you started, you would not be able to stop. Yeah, and I would be in like a complete, yeah, just <laughs> Google a hole. Like, get me out like of Like, you here. have real things to do this week. Yeah, <laughs> truth. But man, yeah, I, it's another one of those things where like, you never want to say everyone should do DNA because it, there are so many reasons for it to be uncomfortable. But if you are comfortable 
and you're from New Jersey, <laughs> do it, you know? You know, I just see, like, you never know. You just never know who you could help, I guess. Yeah. At the end of the day, you don't know who you could help. Yeah, I say that as I have mine literally sitting on my, like, bookshelf. I was going to say, have you I got it back not... yet? You haven't spit in the tube? That's the easiest part. But then I have to go to the post office and drop it off. No, you don't. Just have them come and get it. Just do it. There was this tweet a while ago that was like, you've won $10 million. Why are you not getting it? A, you have to go to the post office. Yep. B, you have to submit your birth certificate. Oh, my gosh. Imagine C. Yeah. being me and having to go to the post office for your daily mail because we don't have mailboxes in this town and all I have is a P.O. box. I couldn't. I would hate it's it. It's so annoying. I would never get mail. I would just not get mail. Well, here's the thing. Like, we all get, like, a free little mailbox for living here, but I pay for a giant one because I know myself well enough to know I'm not going to pick it up more than once every two weeks. <laughs> so I'm like, I'll just pay for a big one so you guys can just pile it in there. <laughs> I have to, every time I send you something, I have to check because Amazon gets so confused with your address. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, side notes aside, tell us about cut some of that because because we both need to go to bed. Yeah, we do. I'm like now I'm all punch drunk and I need to go to bed and I need a lesson plan for tomorrow and it's eleven seventeen and yeah. Um, So next time, I'm taking a little bit of a detour from what I thought I was going to do because I spent last weekend in beautiful Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I. was looking into stuff in that area because we haven't really visited West Michigan too much, although we did today. Um, Surprise! Yeah. So I wanted to to look into it, and we are going to kind of go back into one of my favorite tropes, which is uh, kind of landmark cases. We're going to be looking at a case of the murder of a young mother, um, the probable murder of her infant daughter, and... Michigan's only resident on death row because Michigan is not a death penalty state. So how did this come to be? Come back and find out. I want to know. Mm, Come back and find out. Okay. Yeah. I will be here. I will be back. Well, you'll be. (laughs) (laughs) It'd be good if all of you guys came back too. That would make us really happy. Come keep me company. Yeah, so come back for that. We'll be in the we'll be in the woods of uh, Northwest Michigan. We will be um, looking into uh, just a kind of a, tr- a very troubling case that is uh, extremely unique in the milieu of Michigan true crime. I'm very excited now. Indeed. Thank you. So, uh, in the meantime, friends, please do connect with us on. The socials we are at midwretched please feel free to send us case suggestions we love that um and mostly be well out there because man these stories are messed up and shit is rough shit's man. rough man like mm, yeah and don't kidnap any babies just... no and i mean god like i'm just like spinning out about my own bullshit like take care of yourselves if any of this was triggering for you or if all of it was triggering for you please do take care of yourself yeah i'm sorry i didn't think of this as one of those ones that are like oh this will be triggering for people but then i'm like oh yeah moms babies family shit mm-hmm. i don't know devastating family secrets the whole shebang yeah you got it all you got it all <sighs> yeah 
We got it all here. <laughs> if anybody told you that the Midwest was boring, let no. me tell you something. Yep, fly over my ass. Anyway, uh, we will see you back here in a couple of weeks, my friends. Please be well out there. Have a good one. Hopefully it'll be warm when we see you next. Seriously. I've ruined everything. Oh man! <laughs> <laughs> oh god! Uh, what has happened? Okay, there you go. There you go. There you go. Okay. Hot mess express. Hot mess express. That's what they call me. <laughs> <laughs>